on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about coal. If you're a regular listener to America's Voice for Energy, you know that I like to be timely. I like to have each week's topic based on a current news story. I generally write on Friday, or at least I say I generally write on Friday. It often rolls over into Saturday. And this week on Thursday, or for this week's topic, on Thursday I didn't know what I was going to write. I was talking with some colleagues about what am I going to write this week, which is unusual for me because usually I have two or three big energy stories to choose between, and I have to make a choice. But this week I, I was struggling for a topic. And I said, well, you know, Arch Cole filed bankruptcy on Monday, and, you know, maybe I think I'm going to go with coal. And my colleague said, yeah, yeah, go with coal. You haven't done anything on coal for a while. So I decided to do that. I Before I started writing, however, I got an email about an announcement that was going to, that I could participate in a conference call with Secretary Jewell announcing changing in federal policy for coal leasing. Now, at this time, I did not, had not watched the State of the Union address. I was involved in some moving stuff, and I just did not watch the State of the Union address. But as I did my research, I discovered that on during the State of the Union address, President Obama announced changes to the way we manage our coal and oil resources. Well, just three days later on Friday, uh, Secretary Jewell announced a moratorium on coal leases on federal land. Now, realize this happened Friday morning. I was writing on Friday, because I was traveling on Saturday this week, and I did my research, and you know, there just wasn't much else out there on this. However, I came across a really thorough uh, piece written by Dustin Blyzeffer, sorry Dustin, it's an odd name, I thought I had it ready, and uh, I referenced him in my column, and Dustin has agreed to join me today. He is the editor-in-chief of Wyofile, and Dustin, I'm going to let you tell us what that is, but you have a large background and interest in the energy industry, and so I appreciate you joining us today to talk about this new moratorium and uh, its impact in Wyoming and beyond. Oh, thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for your interest in Wildfile. Um, by being the introduction, uh, Wildfile is a, is a nonprofit news organization uh, in Wyoming, uh, founded by some kind of old-school journalists who uh, like to uh, promote uh, in-depth in-depth reporting about Wyoming people, places, and policy, and uh, and we make our content available for free to newspapers and others. And I am editor in chief. Um, I come from Wyoming, where I've reported on the energy industry for more than 16 years, and uh, and so as you can imagine, Wyoming producing. Um, about 40% of the nation's coal. Coal is always a big topic here in Wyoming, and it certainly was on Friday, too. Yeah, were you surprised with this announcement? Um, 
I was a little surprised of the full moratorium. Now, the the Interior Department had, went around the country and had several public uh, hearings to accept public comment, kind of listening sessions, they called them. And that was in response to several studies, uh, including a review by the DOA uh, government. Um, Accountability government, office. Yeah. Um, that highlighted some, some serious um, uh, questions about the coal leasing program. Um, about whether or not um, the federal government was uh, promoting this resource uh, cheaply uh, as, as a means of uh, uh, kind of uh, making sure that there's uh, cheap coal available to U.S. utilities. Um, so, I, but, but after several studies that 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 pointed that the uh, there could be some deficiencies and there obviously needed to be some updates uh, to the program given the fact that some of the companies were looking at export, uh, exporting to foreign countries. Um, uh, so they held these listening sessions and, yeah, I guess... So these listening sessions, these, these listening sessions have already been held, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, so they were held in 2015. Uh, you know, including uh, one in Gillette, and and I, I was a little surprised on Friday that that the Interior Department called for a full moratorium. Um, now, now, what they're doing is is, is they're going to conduct what's called a programmatic EIS, Environmental Impact Statement. Uh, these are pretty thorough. Um, this, is a, this is a pretty thorough review, and what's important about it is is that law requires public participation in this, um, and that's a good thing. Um, uh, but, but the other kind of surprising part about this is the scope. And the, the scope is not just the leasing program. Um, it, you know, does the federal government lease its publicly owned coal? We, you know, we're looking at the environmental impacts of the mining uh, and the burning of that coal. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I think that they brought in that they're looking at the whole cycle. Yeah, including carbon's impact, uh, carbon's impact on the uh, environment and on, and on human health and, and on climate change. So it's, yeah. it's a very expansive review. And they committed to doing it within three years, which is, uh, that, that's biting off a lot. To try to complete that in three years, so it, it was it was a very ambitious move by uh, the Obama administration. Yeah, but not not one um, that that was done nearly at all too soon. Um, if you talk to environmental groups, right, right. I mean, obviously, they want the environmental groups want an end to all coal use no matter what, which also would, would mean coal mining as well. Yeah, you know, there's varying degrees to which um, some, some uh, environmental groups align themselves. Um, I remember quite a few would call for gradual reduction in coal. Um, but, yeah, certainly there are those who definitely want to see coal remain in the ground. Um, 
chiefly for its contribution to climate change. Yeah, that's what that's what it all kind of stems on. But it has um, in Wyoming, you've had a, a really swift backlash from your governor and legislators. Yeah, well, uh, they, they didn't have to. Uh, they didn't have to rewrite their speeches or anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, the things they said on Friday are what they've been saying for the past uh, 10 years or more. Yeah, I had the opportunity to uh, hear Governor Meade speak at the Republican Governor's Convention, uh, which was in November after Governor Meade had been um, elected but not yet sworn in. It was in that window time when he's governor-elect. And I have a story about him in my book, Energy Freedom, where I remember him saying that, you know, when he was campaigning, he was going door to door, you know, talking to people, campaigning, as you do. And that he opened, oh, talked to one guy who opened the door, and the man said to him, we have got to get off of dirty coal. And Governor Meade said to him, oh, and what do you suppose we replace it with? And the man said, why, electricity, of course. And I love that story because it illustrates the public's kind of cluelessness, their unengagement or disengagement with the reality of what it takes to, you know, power your iPhone or turn on your computer. Yeah. Yeah, those are the kind of anecdotes we hear uh, a lot from our our uh, elected representatives here in Wyoming. Um, yeah, you know, but, but, you know, Governor Meade knows well to um, some of the forces that are fighting against coal, and, you know, they're not all political by any means. In fact, um, the number one, <clears throat> the, the, the number one uh, driver uh, that has worked against coal in the past 10 years is uh, domestic natural gas. Oh, yeah. Uh, the fracking technology that unlocked the Marcellus and and all these other uh, shale plays around the U.S. A, a, a lot, a lot of that fracking technology was refined in Wyoming, ironically. Um, and you know that, that power of the free market is what really kind of uh, kicked coal off the top of the ladder. Yeah, but I, I don't think it kicked it totally off the ladder. I mean, certainly we see how many coal-fired power plants are being built in China and other Asian countries, and there's certainly uh, plenty of market, I believe, um, for coal, which provides the most uh, consistently reliable, low-cost electricity. I mean, natural gas, I believe, certainly has a place. But um, without the bully pulpit of the White House at all killing coal, I, I don't think we would see that transition anywhere near as rapidly as we have. Yeah, well, the Obama administration didn't have to do much to um, you know, uh, put a tailwind behind this downward trajectory of their uh, um, it, it, it's purely been a, it's almost been entirely a market-driven thing with uh, domestic natural gas, and the demand from overseas just has not been there. In fact, a lot of these coal companies that are, that are in bankruptcy and flirting with bankruptcy right now uh, made big bets on metallurgic coal and exports, and they just didn't materialize. 
Yeah, I read yeah. that in your piece, and that was something that I was not familiar with. So I, I, I want to point out again, uh, we're running out of time, Dustin, but uh, what was the name of your column that I quoted, and, and how can people read that? Because I really encourage our listeners to check that out. Well, you can go to wildfile.com. And, you know, that, that is W-Y-O and then the word file.com. Yes, thank you. Yeah, W-Y-O-F-I-L-E.com. And uh, you, you can type in coal and read all of our coal columns or, or type in energy. And, um, but yeah, the, uh, uh, as I was saying, I just want to reiterate, uh, the Obama administration didn't have to work very hard um, to, uh, to bring coal to where it is now. But, but what, what his action does do is very important. Um, uh, it, it kind of affirms what the market, it kind of affirms kind of the direction of where the market has been headed. Yes. And utilities, you know, U.S. utilities were saying um, uh, seven, eight years ago that, that they're not going to build any more new coal plants. Um, Rocky Mountain Power uh, announced that, I think, since early as 2008. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so that's why uh, a lot of these coal companies were looking overseas. And so far that demand just has not materialized. Hmm. Well, we're out of time, Dustin. I appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today on uh, this important issue and this news story of uh, the Interior Department putting the moratorium on um, all federal leasing are for coal mines on federal lands. We've been talking with Dustin Blyzeffer, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of wildfile.com. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. We'll be back in just a few minutes with our next guest. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, 
visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. You know, this week the entire show is new people that have never been on America's Voice for Energy, and I've made some wonderful new friends this week, and I hope you will feel the same way. In this segment, we're going to talk with Christian Palak, who is the president of the Ohio Coal Association. And my good friend Bill Bissett from the Kentucky Coal Association uh, was not available to be with us for this topic, and he said, why don't you reach out to Christian, and from our uh, pre-show conversations, I know you're going to really appreciate his insight. So, Christian, thanks for taking time out of your busy day to join us today on America's Voice for Energy. Happy to do it, Marita. Thanks so much for having me on. So, you know, we're we're talking about um, the announcement from the Department of Interior on the 15th, January 15th, about the moratorium of uh, leasing for coal on, for coal mining on federal lands. And while, as I acknowledge in my column, this probably doesn't really make a huge difference to the industry as a whole, because with the price of coal where it is, uh, there's not a lot of demand for leasing on federal lands. But I think it sends a bigger signal. Uh, what's your interpretation? I think you're right, Marita. It is uh, just another notch in the president's war on coal. And uh, you know, this announcement here in Ohio, uh, we do have one of our companies we uh, that's a member of the Ohio Coal Association that would be affected by this moratorium. And more than anything, it's a it's a PR process for the president to continue to try to get public opinion on his side, especially after the Paris climate deal uh, situation that was in November. Um, just a PR stunt to continue to try to drive down coal prices and hurt the industry as a whole um, for what he's done over the last eight years of his presidency has been against our industry. So I'd like to say, Maria, I was shocked by what came out on the 15th, but um, certainly not. Yeah, I agree, sadly. Uh, You know, and I had not watched, I hate to admit, the State of the Union address, just couldn't bring myself to do it. And when I... um, did start doing the research on this column and saw that President Obama had hinted at this uh, in his State of the Union address. He certainly did. He made some, some very poignant comments and uh, veiled threats, as I put it, um, yeah. in discussing this uh, about what he was going to do. And we knew something was coming down the pipe. And, uh, you know, it's really sad to hear that he continues to uh, you know, demonize the coal industry and the hardworking people um, that represent it and that work in it, you know, to provide affordable energy. Um, Senator McConnell had an unemployed Kentucky coal miner at the State of the Union that had to sit in there with his wife and hear the most uh, powerful man in the world demonize an industry that has created so many jobs and done so much to promote the American experience. So um, I'd like to say, again, I was surprised, but, you know, in the State of the Union, when he said subsidizing the past as he views the industry, we all kind of knew that something bad was going to be coming down and, for our friends out west, I think this will affect them a lot more than here. But um, it's just another um, politically motivated uh, kowtow to the radical environmentalists that this president's prided himself on. 
Yeah, it definitely has an impact on uh, my home state of New Mexico, speaking about West. And, of course, in my column, I made ref a lot of reference to Wyoming, where it will have a big impact. And, and of course, our first guest uh, on America's Voice for Energy today was from Wyoming. Now, as, as president of the Ohio Coal Association, what uh, legislation, what issues are you watching out there? Well, Maria, we have two big issues that we're working on and watching um, that are going to affect our industry and the industry across the country, um, one, of course, being the clean power plant. Um, this is the administration's way of attacking our customers and making coal not economically viable, and we're continuing to fight back against that plan. Twenty-seven AGs and governors across the country have filed suit against it, and we definitely think we have the legal and political uh, will on our side to continue to fight that. Uh, we call it the cold and powerless plan because once this goes through, we're not going to have the coal to keep us warm, and we're going to see energy prices um, go up for some of America's most needy families. That you know, it's uh, it's five degrees here in Columbus, and I would hate for the heat to go out for any families because they can't afford to pay energy bills that could result from this plan. The other well, thing, we're, we're already seeing energy bills uh, throughout the country uh, increasing because of the increased use of uh, renewables, solar and wind in particular. I was uh, chatting on Facebook with a friend and said uh, she's in Minnesota, and she said that her utility bill has doubled in recent years. And I said to her, doubled? Of course, I said this typing it on Facebook. She said, yes, do you want me to send you the bills? copy of the bill. No, no, that's okay. I trust you. But we're already seeing that uh, in many, many places in the country. Absolutely. And, Marita, the thing is, you know, maybe the president and his uh, wealthy environmentalist friends like Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg can afford to pay these higher bills. But, you know, I have a, an 88-year-old grandmother that lives in cold northeast Ohio that if uh, she couldn't afford to pay her energy bills on her fixed income as they continue to rise, you know, it's a real human issue if the heat would go out or the electricity would go out. So, you know, maybe they can afford to pay their bills and subsidize, you know, the uh, the renewable industry. But we personally, here in Ohio, where we get electricity from coal at a rate of about 63%, almost 70, you know, we, we need it to keep the energy bills down, but we're seeing them go up as well. Yeah, so yeah, I interrupted you. You were going to mention another issue. Yeah, the other issue we're focused on hits more on the actual mining process, and that's the stream protection rule that the Office of Surface Mining um, released earlier this year. And um, this rule we call the stop production rule instead of SDR because this is going to stop our production. You know, we can't mine because of these ridiculous duplicative rules that the office is putting through. And, of course, you know, all 3,000 miners that are employed here in Ohio are at, uh, at risk because of what the Office of Surface Mining is doing. And, again, it's against the will of the Congress. It's against the will of the people. Um, well, just last week, the U.S. House passed 235 to 188 on a bipartisan measure to strike down this rule. Now, that's something, you know, I followed the Clean Power Plan a lot. I was in Atlanta testifying at the EPA's uh, dog and pony show that they call a listening ses session, and, I, and I've written on the Clean Power Plan extensively. But I don't really have not followed this stream rule. I don't know anything about it. Can you explain it? Yeah, I, what, it, what it is is it's completely redesignating streams in the process, and it completely rewrites uh, SMACRA, the Surface Mining Reclamation Act from 1970s. And it's, it did include the states. States have all been very upset and filed comments against it. It would essentially create more federal overreach that OSM can come in and tell the states what to do on the stream rule. And I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Yeah, more federal know, overreach? Right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, it would cause... Um, 
essentially almost all our coal operations to shut down if we see this rule go uh, through in full effect. Well, you know, that's, that's what so many of these rules are about. I mean, I've written excessively also on waters of the U.S., and in fact, uh, one of the, when I wrote a column on that, the uh, Capital Research Center, which does a piece called Green Watch, which you may be familiar with, but their October edition, ha I wrote a, a, a comprehensive piece for them on waters of the U.S., including creeks and dish ditches. So I'm very familiar with that. So how is this stream rule different? Well, it affects more the mining process, and it also creates buffer zones on mining around the streams and ditches you're talking about. So if, uh, you know, it's a double double punch, you use LOTUS to designate the things, and then you're going to use the stream protection rule to not allow the mining on it. So um, they kind of go hand in hand, and as a matter of fact, on LOTUS, I saw the president uh, vetoed that this week um, after the House and Senate um, of the representatives of Congress uh, voted to strike it down, again, on a bipartisan measure. So, oh, I didn't realize that. So the Congress yeah. struck down waters of the U.S. rule and the president vetoed it. Absolutely, yes. Uh, of course, it's no surprise that he vetoed it, but it's got a stay. Waters of the U.S. has a stay, a nationwide stay from, what, the court, Cincinnati court? Yes, yes, it has. And, you know, our attorney general here in Ohio, um, Mike DeWine, has filed a lawsuit against um, the federal government on the Lotus Rule. And uh, once again, we, in our conversations and readings, um, we feel we have very uh, good legal footing that uh, this rule will be uh, struck down for what it is, and that's excessive federal overreach. And so that would seem like it would help the stream buffer zone rule as well. It certainly would, but, Marita, we're under no, um, we're under no inclination that we think the president in the next uh, you know, year is going to change his mind on any of these rules that affect the industry. Um, we understand our plan needs to be to continue to fight back, tell the people um, that disasters that are going to come from these rules to the industry, and then hope a new administration uh, that will come in in 2017 will say, you know, we need to have coal to supply good, healthy families and businesses and can strike all these rules down. Yeah, well, certainly we, we will have a new president uh uh, in the White House by this time next year, and hopefully it will be somebody uh, that understands the role that energy plays in America. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's really sad, uh, Marita. We've taken state legislators, federal legislators, um, regulators um, underground into our surface mine, and to see the miners talk to these folks um, with, with uncertainty and with worry in their voices because this president has built a legacy on the backs of them and on the backs of families that rely on affordable energy and businesses. Yeah. And it's really, it really is sad. You know, people have been in the industry their whole entire lives are now fearing that any day they could come in and be laid off for nothing more than the president trying to pay off his radical environmentalist supporters and donors. And um, it's really sad. And us at the Ecole Association, we're committed to educating and advocating for those folks to make sure their voice is heard because – What's happened during this administration is uh, it's really disgusting, and it's really upsetting to people like uh, you, I, and many of your listeners who believe in everything that Cole's done for the American experience. Yeah, I think really what what has been done is is nothing short nothing short of criminal. Now we've just got a couple minutes left, Christian. You've been a great guest. I appreciate your uh, your enthusiasm for these issues. What what's happening? You said Congress passed this this bill, and so what what is the bill, and what does it do? 
the, the Stream Act is the one I was referring to that passed uh, last week. Uh, it's House, House. House. Yes, it's House Resolution 1644. Uh, Congressman Mooney of West Virginia was the sponsor. Um, the last two Congresses, um, the Congressman I used to work for, Congressman Bill Johnson of Ohio, was uh, the sponsor of the bill. And the bill will repeal OSM stream protection rule and put uh, the power back to the states to regulate um, what they were supposed to regulate in Smacker in the 70s. So it, it's a good bill, and like I said, it passed bipartisanly, and we hope that the Senate uh, will take it up in the next year. Um, but, Marita, we both know even if the Senate passes it, which we believe they would, the President of the United States won't sign it into law, much like he vetoed the WOTUS rule. So more than anything, we're showing the people that we have bipartisan support on these coal issues in right. 2017, with a friendly Congress and hopefully a friendly president, we really can't turn the coal industry around. And I think that we're going to do that this year because people are upset, and we're seeing it. You know, Ohio is a key swing state, and coal country, Marita, is all of eastern and southeastern Ohio, and you're going to see these issues play out, and candidates will need to win that part of the state to win the White House. Well, I hope that uh, those in the coal mining industry switch their traditional vote because if they vote as they typically have, uh, they're going to be totally out of business. Yeah, you know, and we're seeing a lot of that. You know, West Virginia, for the first time in, I believe, 84 years, is now controlled by Republicans um, because of what I think federal uh, Democrats have done. Um, we've seen traditional spots of more blue-dog Democrats here in Ohio uh, going the ways of Republicans because of the left leanings of the federal Democratic Party. Um, you know, yeah, and of I course work, we've seen the governor's office in Kentucky switch for that reason. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and you know, frequently you hear folks say, well, you know, I'm, you know, some of our Democrat friends say, you know, I'm pro-coal, but they'll endorse Barack Obama or they'll endorse Hillary Clinton, which will continue the pain that the yeah. coal fields are seeing. You know, that's yeah. something we, just, we can't have anymore. We're in a crisis spot in the industry, and we need true friends of coal in these offices to make sure we get back on track. And it's not just coal. It's true friends of industry, uh, as, as the uh, anti-fossil fuel crowd has acknowledged with their Keep It in the Ground campaign. Christian Pallack, we're out of time, president of the Ohio Coal Association. Thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. 
Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Okay, and next I will hit the timer button, which has moved itself on my phone somehow. <laughs> Amazing how these things work. Okay, so. Um, we're going to be 13 minutes, and this will, for my producer, this will be either segment um, probably three or four, because coal ash is later in my column. And we will begin, hang on a sec, my voice sounds, I haven't had a sip of tea yet. <laughs> my voice sounds kind of like I just got out of bed, funny thing about that. Okay. But, that, you know, the beauty of modern technology is you can do this stuff with bedhead hair in your bathroom. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll begin in three, two, one. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week, as you know, I've been talking about coal. But towards the end of my column, Killing Coal, the Obama Administration's Intentional Assault on an Industry, I talk about an interesting thing. And that is the civil rights hearing uh, about coal ash. Now, they call it toxic coal ash and coal ash um, waste disposal near low-income areas. And that's why they're claiming it's a civil rights issue. Now, if you read my column or you heard us talk about it, you might be thinking to yourself, what is coal ash? ash. And so we're going to find out in this segment, really, what is coal ash? Is it toxic? Is it a civil rights issue? Is it something any of us really need to be concerned about? And so we've got Thomas Adams with us for this segment of America's Voice for Energy. And he's he's the executive director with the American Coal Ash Association. So who better to tell us about Coal Ash. So, Thomas, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Happy to be here. Nice, nice to be with you. You know, when you and I talked prior to, um, you know, our, your coming on the air, I told you that I first became aware of coal ash when I toured a coal-fired power plant in northwest New Mexico. And uh, there I learned about some of the um, uses for coal ash. I mean, I'd never given coal ash a thought prior to that. And when I asked them why don't they take, why are they burying this coal ash when it has so many uses, which I expect you to tell us about, they said, well, we don't have rail lines here, and the cost to truck it kind of takes away the advantage of the other economic uses for it. And that was my introduction to coal ash. So could you, you know, I'm assuming most of our listeners are not familiar with coal ash. So what do we need to know? 
Well, just to give you the uh, the overview of what these materials are, uh, when we combust a ton of coal to uh, to generate electricity, uh, not everything is combusted, and then about five to ten percent of that ton of coal remains behind as uh, as these coal ash materials, and and there are essentially uh, four materials uh, that are left behind uh, in, in today's power plants. One is fly ash, which are very very fine particles. Uh, that are uh, collected in bag houses as they fly up in, into the combustion chamber. So th those, um, are no those are no longer going into the atmosphere as they once were, is that correct? Yes, clean air, uh, the clean air requirements that have been with us for quite some time uh, mandated that utilities modify their plants to do something about these materials, which um, decades ago escaped uh, out the stacks of power plants. But these materials are now collected, and fly ash is, is the finest particle, and that's, that's collected in bag houses. Uh, the second material that you find is a bottom ash, which goes to the bottom of the boiler as the coal is combusted. It's a more granular, granular material, kind of like a, a sand uh, consistency. Uh, the third material is not an ash. Uh, it is a slag, a boiler slag, uh, that's produced in certain types of power plants. Uh, many of these power plants are older plants, and, and uh, boiler slag is uh, a material which uh, is starting to uh, disappear from the market a little bit. And the fourth uh, major material that comes from, um, from a power plant these days that's using coal is not an ash at all. It's a synthetic gypsum. Uh, as uh, stack gases are scrubbed to remove uh, SOx and NOx emissions, uh, the, the process of scrubbing these gases to remove these materials um, creates a synthetic gypsum uh, called flue gas desulfurization gypsum. Uh, that's the official term for it. But it is a synthetic gypsum, which is uh, actually slightly more pure than the mine gypsum that we use to uh, produce wallboard and, and other things uh, these days. So we have four major products coming out of a coal-fired power plant these days, two of which are, are really ashes, uh, and the other two are not, and, and gypsum certainly uh, is, is not an, an ash product, but it is uh, managed uh, along with the others. So uh, we, we try to find uh, ways to uh, use these products as opposed to sending them off to disposal. And so what are some of the most common uses of them? Well, certainly the marquee product uh, out of all of these uh, is fly ash. Fly ash uh, is used uh, in, uh, primarily in, to manufacture uh, Portland cement and concrete products. And when we use fly ash uh, in concrete products, uh, it provides a dramatic improvement in the strength of the concrete, compressive strengths, which is our most commonly uh, uh, measured uh, benchmark for concrete quality. And it also increases the density of the concrete so that we uh, protect the reinforcing steel in concrete structures uh, from water and, and air getting to the reinforcing steel, which uh, is how corrosion is initiated. So by, by using uh, fly ash in, in concrete products, we're improving its strength and we're improving its durability dramatically. Uh, and that's certainly something which provides a huge benefit uh, when you're looking at uh, creating more sustainable concrete structures. Uh, that's, that's, that's the marquee one. That's certainly something nobody uh, nobody knows about. I, I I had heard and you know the drywall element, but I hadn't heard any didn't know anything about that. Now, what would happen to concrete? And I know you have a background in concrete, as I read your bio. What would happen uh, if the uh, 
keep it in the ground movement was successful, and all coal-fired power plants went away, which we know, you know, can't happen anytime soon. But, you know, we, did, we have lost 200 coal-fired power plants uh, in recent history. What would happen if they all went away to uh, concrete? What would they use instead of coal ash, or is there nothing currently available that, that compares? It's a great question. Um, one, of the, one of the really important uses of fly ash in concrete products is to mitigate uh, a reactivity problem that we're running into across the country, uh, and that's called alkali silica reactivity. Um, certain aggregates that are used in concrete, sand and stone, uh, react uh, to, with alkalis and cause a deleterious expansion uh, in concrete structures, uh, which, which result in premature deterioration. Typically, if you have an alkali silica reactivity problem, it'll start showing up in, in 10 to 15 years after the structure is, is uh, built. However, it can show up as early as five years after a structure is built, and as a result, if you don't uh, take steps to mitigate this reactivity, and the primary tool for doing that is the, the use of fly ash, if you don't take steps to mitigate that, that um, uh, alkali reactivity, uh, you can have a structure which uh, you planned on using for uh, 50 years in case of the bridge structures, and the, the bridge would only last 10 to 15 or 20 years. So you can see that uh, this is a serious problem facing the transportation community, and the transportation community is very concerned about future supplies of fly ash because the alternatives uh, to fly ash for alkali silica reactivity mitigation are very limited and very costly. So that, that's a, a major issue they're facing us today. So, uh, so they're One aware of, the, of this. They're aware of this as an issue. Absolutely, and, and uh, wherever we go these days and, and talk to uh, folks in the transportation industry, that's their number one question. Are we going to have fly ash in the future? What's the quality going to be? Um, what else can we do to mitigate the ASR, as we, we refer to it? Um, so, that's so a major if, concern. If I was to say that by shutting down coal-fired power plants, we are risking the stability of uh, America's future infrastructure, I would not be inaccurate in saying that. It, it, would, it would be a serious problem for the uh, transportation industry uh, to not have fly ash available. Um, just a f three or four years ago, we had a study done uh, by the American Road and Transportation Builders Association, which posed the question to all 50 states uh, talking to the departments of transportation across the country, what would the impact be to, on your state if we did not have fly ash for use in your transportation work. And the, the uh, report came back and, and said the uh, implications of not having fly ash would cost the, the uh, DOTs across the country over $100 billion over five years if they didn't have, excuse me, over 20 years if they didn't have uh, fly ash available. So uh, over $5 billion a year is the impact on directly on states if they did not have fly ash available uh, for their work. Um, wow. I assume we all you're going to say some of this. I assume you're going to say some of this at the hearing on Friday. Uh, absolutely, because uh, the, the beneficial use of not only fly ash but all coal combustion products uh, is one of the great environmental stories of our time. And we should be looking for ways to, to take this material and use as much as we possibly can, um, not only to, because it's the right thing for the environment, but it's also the right thing for the economy. And quite well, frankly, as you said, uh, it, makes better, it makes better cement. 
and there's really not yeah. a replacement for it. Yes, yeah, so the, the concrete that, that's made with fly ash is better. And uh, when you look at the other products, for example, we mentioned the synthetic gypsum that comes from power plant uh, scrubbers. About 50% of the wallboard in the United States is manufactured with this uh, synthetic gypsum. And when you look at it, at it from a sustainability point of view, it's far more sustainable to take this product uh, rather than sending it to a landfill and send it to a drywall plant uh, as opposed to mining uh, gypsum at a gypsum mine, uh, then tra having to transport that material to a, to a wallboard plant and, and all the steps in between, which uh, are not uh, really contributing to a sustainable solution. So uh, the, the drywall industry is very important. And another use for that, that uh, gypsum uh, is very interesting. It, it's uh, used in agriculture uh, as a soil amendment uh, and also to help control runoff on, on farms in 33 states in the United States. And that's a, a growing uh, market, uh, very rapidly growing market, and, and it's a very important market uh, because uh, the, the materials is uh, doing an excellent job in improving uh, agriculture and controlling runoff. Wow. I, you know, I'm almost out of time. Thomas, are you able to stay for another segment with me? Sure, absolutely. You have time on your schedule? Okay, good, because I have so many more questions. I just I find this fascinating. I hope our listeners do because I'm fascinated by this because you know, you're telling me you're, you, that this, this um, coal ash, a portion of it, is used in soil amendment and so forth. So I'm confused as to why, why is this, why, why are they against this? Why is this a civil rights matter? Why is this hearing going to be looking at so-called toxic coal ash? When I'm listening to you, it sounds anything but toxic. And we've got about one minute uh, before we go to a break. The toxicity uh, label is one that's uh, been assigned to coal ash by um, anti-coal environmental groups. The fact of the matter is toxicity is defined in the Resource Conservation Recovery Act of 1976, and coal ash does not meet the thresholds. It doesn't even come close to the thresholds for being defined as toxic in the law. So um, they, they just use that as hyperbole just as a, to, to catch attention to be dramatic? Yeah, the, the anti-coal environmental groups that uh, have been promoting this use of this term for so long uh, can't help themselves. And, and if the EPA um, could find a way to uh, label coal ash as toxic, they would have done it a long time ago because that opens many doors for uh, enforcement for EPA if they can make that label stick, and the science just doesn't support that. Well, all right. Well, we're, we're going to be right back with more with Thomas Adams talking about coal ash and the amazing uses for it. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, 
it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm so pleased that Thomas Adams had the time to, to join us for another segment because I still have so many questions about coal ash and this upcoming hearing with the Civil Rights Commission. So, you know, Thomas, we were talking about the toxicity of coal ash, and, of course, you know, mo- almost anything, including water, is uh, toxic in, in uh, you know, the right quantities, and I'm sure that, that there are cases, perhaps, uh, where where uh, coal ash has been detrimental. Ha- have there been? Yes, there are some damage cases uh, that uh, are on the record. Um, none of them are, by the way, are connected to beneficial use or recycling, as people refer to beneficial use quite often. Um, there have been uh, instances where that has been an, an issue, um, but the reality is that uh, when we're looking at, at uh, those cases, many of them uh, have, uh, have been mitigated with, uh, without any uh, harm to human health, uh, certainly environmental impacts. And the way that coal ash is being used these days, not only in, in beneficial use but also in disposal, uh, is, is really significantly better than when these damage cases occurred. Many of the damage cases that you see are, are 20, 30, 40 years old when uh, the engineering standards were quite different. And right. so uh, what we see today is, is um, engineering standards which are very protective of human health and environment. And the last thing in the, that we'd like to see as American Coal Ash Association is have anything uh, that would occur that would be detrimental to human health and environment. That's, that's the first criteria we have for determining beneficial use is any use has to be protective of the environment. Now, a few years back, I recall, and it was kind of before I was in this line of work, so I wasn't as focused on it, but I recall that there was a recall of Chinese drywall or wallboard, um, and it had something to do with this, didn't it? Uh, actually, the, the situation with the wallboard was uh, uh, typical of some of the problems we've seen with other products from China being contaminated uh, with various materials. And, and I think if you go back and look at uh, infant formula and uh, children's toys and, and a number of other products where, I where know things dog biscuits, have... Dog food or dog <laughs> biscuits at one point. My husband would let me feed my dog treats that I bought from, <laughs> bought from Target that were made in China. 
Yeah, so we've seen a, a number of products that have come from China that have been contaminated and not produced to the standards that we have here in the United States. So um, back in the, in the uh, I believe it was 2005, I, I may have the date incorrect, but that's not important. The important thing is that uh, at one point in time we could not keep up uh, with demand for wallboard, so wallboard was imported from China and used uh, in the U.S. while the uh, residential uh, builders were uh, going so strongly. And uh, it happened that these, these uh, giant Chinese shipments were contaminated mostly with sulfur. And as, uh, as these uh, pieces of wallboard uh, became exposed to moisture and, and high temperatures, uh, that sulfur started to get released, and it created some very severe, uh, as you can imagine, uh, odor problems in homes, made the, made the air quality uh, unbearable, and it also started to attack uh, copper plumbing and electrical lines and that kind of thing, and uh, so there were an, a lot of homes that were impacted uh, through various parts of the country, and uh, as, as a result, those, those homes uh, had to be uh, retrofitted and, uh, with uh, materials, have the Chinese wallboard torn out. Unfortunately, uh, in many cases, the Chinese wallboard was blended in with materials made in the U.S., and at that point in time, there were no labeling requirements, so you couldn't determine if the wallboard uh, that you were looking at was made in China or the U.S. It just, uh, you just knew you had damage. So you, in many cases, uh, the entire house had to be stripped out and, and rebuilt. Wow. So the problem wasn't actual, wasn't that it had the coal ash in it. It was the other components that were, were included in the Chinese production. Exactly. The Chinese uh, products were contaminated. The U.S. products were just fine. And there's, there's not been a problem with any of the wallboard manufactured in the U.S. So if, if we were to, um, you know, ban all, close all coal-fired power plants in the U.S., would we then, because we know China is building coal-fired power plants, and it's my understanding that uh, China, what China is building today in the way of coal-fired power plants is cleaner than anything that we have in the U.S. today because they're building the newest, latest, greatest technology, and we are not building anything new, so we're, we've kind of got older technology. Would we then, to get these materials that are widely lumped as coal ash, would we then import them from China? Well, there's that possibility. India's got, got a, a very quick, rapidly growing uh, coal-fired generation portfolio as well. But uh, going back to the, the closure of plants for just a second, we see in the media almost daily reports of, of coal-fired power plants closing. The fact of the matter is that many of the plants that are being reported as, as being shut down uh, are plants that were are very, very old, uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old in, in some cases, small capacity, small to medium-sized plants that cannot be economically retrofitted to meet today's clean air standards. So it's not really an issue of, uh, of uh, the anti-coal groups and Sierra Club with their Beyond Coal campaign and that kind of thing, uh, putting pressure on utilities and forcing them to shut down plants. These plants were due to retire anyway. That's the well, vast majority of plants that you're seeing. Well, you know, that may be true. However, I know in my personal experience in my home base state of New Mexico, we've got, we're shutting down two perfectly functional uh, coal-fired power plants that had been retrofitted with the air cleaning, you know, technologies, and um, they're, they're being shut down 
to, by the EPA, and it's, we've spent years in New Mexico battling back and forth with the State Environment Department and the EPA, and they finally reached a settlement, but they're shutting down. Yes, they are older power plants, but they still have years of life left in them, not 50, but probably at least, I don't know, I don't really know the number off the top of my head, but I'd say 15. And, you know, budget-wise, that power plant, you know, that has been amortized out to have that kind of life, and mm-hmm. um, by shutting it down early is, you know, it's it's raising utility rates, which I know is not your issue, but that's that's one of the things that I follow, and so I, I know those specific ones, and that's just one case scenario. Yes, they're older power plants, um, but they're still being shut down prematurely. Well, there, there is that, but the majority of the plants that are closing are, are uh, as I described, that's, and, and those plants were not making uh, the kind of fly ash, for example, that we need to have for the uh, for the concrete markets, but there are there are situations where uh, units are being shut down uh, earlier than they should be. Of course, there's a lot of pressure from uh, the, the cheap natural gas prices that we have today, and and uh, quite frankly, I, I don't know how with the energy policies of this administration uh, that we're ever going to uh, to rebuild our manufacturing economy. Uh, we became an economic powerhouse. Uh, one of the reasons we became an economic powerhouse is we had cheap, reliable energy. Uh, in this country to support manufacturing. Uh, today, when we see 80% of the jobs in the, in the United States being hooked to the service industry, uh, that doesn't say very much about our, our manufacturing capability. And, and if we continue to take these steps towards uh, moving away from, from the low-cost, reliable energy that you get from, from using coal, uh, to uh, this fantasy world where where we're going to be uh, having enormous uh, volumes of, of solar and wind uh, energy, um, it, we're just not going to ever get back to being a manufacturing economy in uh, in any significant way. So, well, I surely uh, hope you'll say that at the civil rights hearing. I don't know that it has anything to do with civil rights, but of course, I don't think coal ash has anything to do with civil rights. Can you address that? Well, it, this is kind of interesting because, I, as I understand uh, some of the premise for the hearing, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, the impact of coal ash and coal ash disposal uh, on minority and low-income communities. And uh, what we see in many of these cases, the reason uh, there's this concern is these communities uh, have been built up around coal ash disposal sites. Uh, when these disposal sites, um, the vast majority of them were, were created, there was nothing around them. They were out in the middle of, of nowhere, as, as the terminology goes. And, and as um, the urban areas started to grow and, and they started to grow up around these power plants, um, all of a sudden you had a, a coal ash landfill or a coal ash pond, and then not too far away you had some residential development. It's, it's, it's much like the people that move in next to the airport knowing full well there's an airport there, and then they start complaining about the noise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it, it and and the and frankly, what we'd like to do at the American Coal Ash Association is to help uh, find ways to take the ash that's in these disposal sites, whether they be landfills or ponds, reclaim that ash and put it into the market where it's needed, and that would take care of the problem. Yeah. So, I, is uh, the are these coal ash disposal sites um, that that the lower income community has seemed to have built up around? Um, are they all generally older because coal ash is really no longer being disposed of that way? 
Uh, they they are by and large the older facilities, and that's where the older plants are. And and um, uh, in, in some cases, uh, the communities uh, actually don't mind having a coal ash disposal site nearby. And I'll give you one good example: when the uh, Kingston, Tennessee uh, spill occurred, and the ash had to be removed from the Emory River and the other watershed around the the Kingston uh, plant, that ash was taken to a landfill in Alabama. Uh, the folks in Alabama uh, said, we'll take that ash because we have a, a, a compliant landfill, a, a very good landfill that has liners and groundwater uh, monitoring and, and uh, that kind of thing that, that all uh, good disposal sites have these days. And they, they wanted the income that they were going to get from the Tennessee Valley Authority for taking that ash. So they weren't concerned about economic or environmental justice at that point in time. They wanted the income. So it, it, it flies in the face a little bit of, of an environmental justice argument when you see something like that and, and folks uh, need the income and want the income and they want the jobs that are created uh, 